Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I want to welcome preventative cardiologist, Dr. William Davis, the author of a new blockbuster book called Wheat Belly. Lose the wheat, lose the weight, and find your path back to health. I do a lot of due diligence about the subjects that we cover, the guests that we invite on the show, and I have to tell you that every one of you must buy this book, and you must become knowledgeable about what this man is saying. It is absolutely mind-blowing what he is uncovering about wheat. The increased yield per acre in wheat going from one-fold to ten-fold, shorter growing seasons, earlier harvest, breeding of new synthetic wheat. Over the past 50 years, we have thousands of new types of wheat making wheat a super carbohydrate that increases your blood sugar, stimulates your appetite, and in fact is making us fatter and fatter and fatter. It's laced into the entire food supply. But I want Dr. William Davis to talk to us about what we need to know about wheat. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome William Davis to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon. Hi, Kim. Take us into the distinction between wheat and gluten, because I think when people hear wheat, they think gluten. Yeah, that's a very, very common point of confusion, Kim. I agree. Uh, gluten is a glu- group of proteins found in wheat, also found in several other plants, or at least in related forms, like barley and rye, and maybe oats. But uh, for me, this is not a gluten avoidance for the gluten-sensitive discussion. That's what's making headlines now, and that's what people are, li- are hearing. It's really wheat elimination for everyone. So it is, in effect, gluten elimination, but it's really more so elimination of this plant called wheat because there's so much more to wheat than just gluten. Gluten is the protein that is responsible for multiple inflammatory diseases, and that's bad enough. So celiac disease is the most uh, widely talked about disease from gluten exposure. It's the intestinal destruction that can cause terrible diarrhea, cramps, and bleeding that affects about 1 in 100 Americans, of whom approximately 90% do not even know they have it. But there's so much more to wheat than exposure to gluten. For instance, there's the gliadin protein in wheat. Gliadin is a smaller protein than gluten, and it is responsible for stimulation of appetite. So in the 70s, when this plant was re-engineered, by the way, these are techniques that predate, predate genetic modification. I didn't know that. Yeah, this all predates genetic, the gene splicing techniques and uses far more crude and sometimes even bizarre techniques to generate these new plants. Well, one of the things that resulted, I believe this was inadvertent, was an increase in the quantity of and a change in the structure of the gliadin protein. Now, let me tell you what that is. The gliadin protein turned into a very powerful appetite stimulant. Now, I don't think that was done on purpose, but I do believe that smart food scientists caught on pretty quickly and realized they had this incredible tool in their hands now that could be used to increase appetite, to increase sales. And I believe that's the reason why you and I can walk up and down the aisles in any supermarket and examine the labels on multiple processed foods, and you're going to have a hard time finding a food that doesn't contain wheat flour. You know, wheat is in tomato soup, It's in licorice, it's in salad dressings, it's in virtually everything. I don't think it's necessary for taste and texture. When you and I make these kinds of things, we don't add wheat flour. I think it's there for one reason, and I think it's because smart food scientists caught on quickly to the appetite-stimulating effects of wheat. I have no proof of that, but I cannot conceive of any other reason why wheat is in virtually everything. And it works, by the way. When the new wheat was introduced into the food supply, uh, it finally reached most grocery stores by the mid-80s. There was an across-the-board increase in calorie intake of 400 calories per day. That was followed shortly thereafter by weight gain, diabetes, and all the problems we now see due to this new gliadin protein. There are other things in wheat. There are things like lectins that cause abnormal intestinal permeability. This is 
probably the explanation for why people who consume wheat have more inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and Hashimoto's thyroiditis and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Now, when you say, did you say leptin or lectin, L-E-C or L-E-P-T-I-N? L-E-C as in... uh, Lectin. As in Charlie. Okay. Uh, There's also amylopectin A. Amylopectin A is the carbohydrate in wheat that has a unique branching structure that accounts for wheat's ability to raise blood sugar higher than nearly all other foods. So I find it incredible that we are told to cut our fat, eat more healthy whole grains. In effect, we're told to eat this food that raises blood sugar higher than table sugar, higher than many candy bars. So is it any wonder that we have a nation full of overweight diabetics with big bellies? That's what you get when you consume foods that raise blood sugar to high levels, such as healthy whole grains. It's shocking. You say that... The wheat of today, let's say even of the last 50 years, is not the same of our counterparts a thousand years ago. It's even different from what our grandmothers made. That's right. It's been completely transformed. If we compare wheat of today to the wheat of, say, 40 years ago or 50 years ago, the stuff that our moms or grandmothers made, uh, the the genes have been changed uh, rather substantially. These plants were changed for purposes of increasing yield for the most part. So it was, I don't believe it was evil. They didn't set out to do bad things. Uh, there was a concern, you might remember, in the 60s and 70s that we'd have world population explosion. There's still a concern. That's right. We thought we'd have billions of people starving. So there was a great investment in generating high-yield strains of crops like corn, soy, and wheat. Well, wheat was a particular success story from the geneticist standpoint. And... Um, Uh, there was developed a short, two-foot-tall, high-yield dwarf variant. And this increased yield tenfold. A typical yield, for instance, in 1960 would have been eight, nine, or ten bushels per acre. A typical yield today is 100 to 120 bushels per acre. It is a short, stocky plant. So there are obvious outward differences, even if you just look at the plant. Now, this is accompanied by very substantial internal differences in the biochemistry and genetics of this plant. If we go back, I get a lot of this, Kim. People say things like, well, I can't eliminate wheat or bread because it's in the Bible. And that's right. Wheat is in the Bible. That's emmer wheat. That's not the wheat you're being sold today. Does it exist? It does exist. It's tough to come by. I have a bag of it sitting on my shelf, but I'm afraid to look at or touch it. (laughs) (laughs) You know too much. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can get it from uh, small boutique growers in the U.S. You can find it in small patches in uh, Provence and southern France. Yeah, in southern France, right? Yeah. That could be why the French don't get fat. You know, I interviewed Marie Giuliano, and she talks about how even the bread is different there. Exactly. They tend to use different uh, forms of wheat. They also treat their dough differently. Often the dough is aged. There's a lot of sourdough fermentation. So there's a lot of differences. I don't think it protects the French, by the way, Kim, from all the adverse effects of wheat. Right. But it may blunt some of the weight-gaining effects. But throw into that, of course, the, the French use more fat, which keeps them thin. Right. They don't worry about eating Twinkies and McDonald's either. Uh, so there's a number of cultural differences that might account for the blunting of the wheat effect in the French. Though they are catching up, by the way, so it's not as if any one culture is immune to the effects of wheat. So the Chinese are getting fatter, the Indians are getting fatter, uh, the Japanese are getting fatter as they adopt some of the strains of crops we have in some of our eating ways. They are also catching up. They're not quite there, but they will catch up to us over the next several years. But wheat today is, is just very different from certainly from the wheat of our ancestors. Judge from a number of chromosomes, for instance. So if I compare, let's say, you to a modern Bantu tribeswoman living in, the, uh, in Africa, you have 46 chromosomes, she has 46 chromosomes. If we compare you to a, um, an Aboriginal woman living in the outback of Australia, she likewise has 46 chromosomes. If we compare you to um, a Yanomamo tribeswoman in the rainforest of Brazil, she likewise has 46 chromosomes. So despite outward external differences, we all share 46 chromosomes. 
Well, modern wheat is 42 chromosomes. Wheat of the Bible is 28 chromosomes. So we're not talking about subtle differences. We're talking about dramatic, marked differences that have occurred over the last several hundred, several thousand years. So the wheat we have today is nothing like the wheat of the Bible. Wow, that's really powerful. Many people are going to be depressed at the thought of no toast, no hamburger bread, no pasta, no crackers, no waffles, no pancakes. It goes on and on, doesn't it? It does. Breakfast cereals, bagels, muffins. Now, by the way, one of the things you can do, and this is what I've been spending much of my time lately doing, is you can reimagine, you can recreate, Kim, these foods like a muffin or even pancakes if you remake them with different ingredients. And by the way, this should not be confused with going gluten-free. If you want a disaster, replace wheat with gluten-free foods. So gluten-free foods, sadly, are often made, or almost always made, with cornstarch, rice starch, tapioca starch, and potato starch, among the very few foods that can raise blood sugar higher than even wheat. So unfortunately, people who think they're going to be gluten-free and buy that gluten-free multigrain loaf of bread are setting their blood sugars higher than even wheat does. That's terrible that we don't all know that. Yeah, and unfortunately, we have a booming gluten-free industry. It's going to reach $5 billion dollars by 2015 based on a fundamental misunderstanding of nutrition. So what we don't want to do, of course, Kim, is replace a problem food, wheat, with another problem food, which is gluten-free foods, which is tantamount to saying, let's eat jelly beans instead of wheat. So we don't want to do that. So what if we ask, can we remake, say, cheesecake or pumpkin pie or carrot muffins or fun things like that without wheat and without gluten-free ingredients. That's what I've been spending my day doing. I have those, those, there are, there's a handful of recipes, about 40 of them in the book. I also put a lot of these recipes on my blog, the Wheat Belly blog that accompanies the book. And so I'm going to put up a recipe either tonight or tomorrow, probably for raspberry cheesecake. Um, I put up a recipe for pumpkin pie just before Thanksgiving. So I'm trying to help people recreate some of those fun foods. One of the toughest things to do is to do either a flatbread or sandwich bread. I'm getting very close to having a very nice uh, flatbread. Sandwich bread is going to be a little tougher. So it's not as if you have to have this life of deprivation. You're never going to have another muffin or cookie. You can. I've heard that coconut flour is way better for you than any type of wheat flour. Do you agree? Absolutely. Coconut flour is a common ingredient in a lot of these recipes I have as is ground nuts, like ground almonds. We use a lot of coconut milk, um, uh, lots of fun ingredients. And you can, you can make a very delicious, by the way, carrot cake. Really? You can make a very, very nice cheesecake, chocolate chip cookies to die for. So this is not just eating spinach salad and salmon. This is eating those things too, real foods. But also you can have plenty of indulgences. You know I had for breakfast this morning? Two pieces of raspberry cheesecake uh, with some eggs, too. Now, you've lost a lot of weight, you said, too. Yeah, years ago, I made the uh, silly mistake of hearing my, one of my colleagues, Dean Ornish, Dr. Dean Ornish. Yes. And, of course, he's an advocate of a strict, low-fat diet. Um, I was attending the uh, meetings at the American College of Cardiology in Atlanta. This was at a day... Kim, when my day was filled with procedures, my background is I trained to do procedures like angioplasty, atherectomies, laser angioplasty, stents. That was what I was trained for. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to do day till night. Well, I just happened to see that Dr. Ornish was speaking. I thought, well, I'm going to listen just for fun. So I heard his philosophy on cutting the, all the meats and all the excess oils out of your diet and just eating grains, fruits, and vegetables. Oh, my God. So I gave it a try. Now, I was living in Cleveland at the time, and I used to go jogging three to five miles a day along the Chagrin River. I gained 30 pounds. My HDL cholesterol went to 27. My triglycerides went to 350, which is sky high, and I became a diabetic while I was jogging every day. That was my first demonstration that this notion of cutting your fat and eating more healthy whole grains was not only ineffective, it is a catastrophe. And that's what I saw happen to other people, too, by the way. Regarding diabetes, 
You present in the book how there's like a window where you can stop it or catch it or reverse it. And then there's a point where you can't reverse it. Why? The turning point probably comes, Kim, when you've exhausted your pancreatic function. In other words, the pancreas is responsible for producing insulin, among other things. But if you have kicked and beaten your poor pancreas over the years from overexposure to carbohydrates, and let's, uh, if your pancreas is unable to produce more than 50% of its normal insulin output, you might find that even with the most meticulous effort, even with achieving ideal weight, you still might have a diabetic range blood sugar. So the key is to take these kinds of steps before that happens. So I was diabetic 20 years ago. I'm no longer diabetic. and I have lots of patients, for instance, who are former diabetics and have normal blood sugars and normal hemoglobin A1C. That's that measure of 60 days blood sugar in the normal range. And I don't mean what the laboratory tells us normal because that's nonsense. I'm talking about truly ideal normal. Ideal and what a laboratory says is normal are two different things, two completely different things. So I aim for a hemoglobin A1C, this long-term blood sugar measure of 5.0% or less. Diabetes is about 6.5 and higher. So mine is 4.8%. I have plenty of people who are former diabetics who have hemoglobin A1Cs of 5.0% or less on no drugs. There's that occasional person who is overweight, overconsumed carbohydrates, had high triglycerides, which causes pancreatic damage for so long that even with meticulous effort, they're left with a fasting blood sugar of 140. Thankfully, that's uncommon. Most people, I believe, who are currently diabetic have high hopes of not having diabetes, but it means removing the foods that make us diabetic. You said, as it happens, wheat-free, gluten-free diets are also amylopectin A-free? That's right. So if we remove amylopectin A, the unique form of carbohydrate in wheat, we remove one of the most flagrant high blood sugar-raising foods. So in other words... Uh, if I compare two slices of whole wheat bread, the blood sugar consequences of eating two slices of whole wheat bread, blood sugar goes higher than six teaspoons of table sugar. And that's because the amylopectin A of wheat is highly susceptible to digestion by the enzyme amylase in the mouth and stomach. Uh, so we're told to eat this food, in effect, that raises blood sugar higher than table sugar, higher than many candy bars. And high blood sugars are followed inevitably by high blood insulin. And that sets in motion an entire cascade of events that leads to visceral fat accumulation. And I want to talk about the distinction between fat and visceral fat. You make this clear distinction I think the audience should hear. Yeah, visceral fat, this stuff, the deep fat that lives around your kidneys and liver and intestines and sticks out in the front, what I call a wheat belly, is a very, very different fat. It's highly inflammatory. In fact, if you were to biopsy it, it kind of looks like pus. In other words, it's filled with inflammatory white blood cells. Unlike the fat, say, in your backside or your thigh or your arms, that fat is relatively quiescent. It does, it's not inflamed. Well, this inflamed fat that encircles your tummy and organs and sticks out, what I call a wheat belly, of course, um, those inflamed inflammatory cells emit those inflammatory proteins into your bloodstream and that causes a whole set of other problems it blocks insulin so a big tummy makes you have a higher blood sugar it'll cause inflammation in distant places so a big tummy is commonly associated with hip arthritis and knee arthritis uh, and it raises cancer risk and high blood pressure so visceral fat is a very very unique active organ and produces oodles of inflammatory signals. You said that it's not a problem to have fat in your diet, which I've known that for years, but I think the general public is still brainwashed about fat, that the fat creates fat, and you say no, correct? And that's right. Even the most forward-looking scientists in nutrition, such as Dr. Ron Krauss at UCSF and uh, Dr. Frank Sachs at Harvard, Dr. Frank Hugh. Uh, even including some of the nutritionists who helped craft originally the low-fat American Heart Association diet, have all published publicly their retractions. 
Total fat and saturated fat have nothing to do with heart disease. What they do is they amplify the effects. If you look at blood markers and metabolic markers, you'll find that fat does not cause these abnormalities. They only amplify the abnormalities established by carbohydrate consumption. So the number one cause for heart disease, for instance, in the U.S., is not high cholesterol. It's nice to think that way for the drug companies, but the number one cause by a long stretch in the U.S. of heart disease and stroke is an excess quantity of small LDL particles. Well, there's only two ways to get small LDL particles. One, a genetic susceptibility, and two, carbohydrate consumption. All the fats do, like butter and oils, is to raise the number a little bit more once the carbohydrates set that process in motion. So the fats do not have a causative role. They might have, at worst, a facilitating role. The primary cause is carbohydrate exposure. Now, it's not all carbohydrates because we have a hierarchy of good and bad among carbohydrates, but the worst of the worst, wheat, because of the amylopectin A. So this effect on heart disease is caused by amylopectin A. And by the way, gluten-free foods, likewise. So it's carbohydrates that underlie the explosion in heart disease as well as diabetes. The fats have virtually no role. That's a bit of an oversimplification because there is genetic variation among humans that vary their sensitivity to fats. But speaking generally, total fat intake, saturated fat intake have no role in causing heart disease whatsoever unless you cut them back, which case you replace those calories with carbohydrates. That's when it takes on importance. But humans, Americans, should not be cutting their total fat intake. If anything, they should be increasing it. So people get rid of whole wheat bread, bagels, cereals, pancakes, and waffles. What if they want to eat corn tortillas with their meals? (laughs) Well, you raise another issue, and that is the importance of restricting total carbohydrates. I will say, there's a very, very important aspect of the wheat conversation to be aware of, and that is if I stop eating wheat and I stop taking in the gliadin protein of wheat that amplifies appetite and calorie intake, I, I don't want any more wheat. I, I want less carbohydrates. So there's a natural reduction in calorie, but specifically carbohydrate intake when I go wheat-free. Now, but what if a person says, well, I'm going to be wheat-free. I'm going to eat ice cream and jelly beans all day. Well, that's not good either. So there is a need to not overexpose yourself to carbohydrates. So second after eliminate, you know, some people, by the way, Kim, lots of people actually do just fine. They do just fine with perfect metabolic markers and ideal weight. If all they do in diet is cut wheat and eat real foods, eat avocados and guacamole and olive oil and meats and chicken and vegetables, they, many people do just fine. But we have such a world filled with obesity, overweight, diabetes, pre-diabetes, that removing wheat may not fully provide the uh, unraveling of all those effects. Those people will get better faster by further restricting all carbohydrates. So that includes things made of corn meal or corn starch and sugars, fruits, buckwheat, millet, non-wheat grains. So there are many people who still have to, if they want full health, ideal health, have to cut back total carbohydrates after even cutting out the wheat. That's a great point. Now I have a little more of a complex question. Let's talk about beef and chicken and the fact that they may have been fed wheat products that we want to stay away from. What do we do? Well, um, as you know, the whole factory farming issue and the industrialization of uh, farm animals is is yet another problem. Those animals are often fed uh, corn, um, cheap feed, and that tends to cause a different kind of fat composition, not to mention the fat that serves as a repository for growth hormone and antibiotics. So um, uh, we have to be careful where we get our meat from. Uh, by the way, I, I, I'm a former vegetarian. I don't like meat very much, but I think meat consumption is perfectly compatible with human health. Yeah, I do too. I'm glad you're saying that. People often hear that I was a vegetarian. They think I'm trying to blast meat eaters. I'm not. I don't personally like care for meat that much. But I do think if people want to have a steak and eat the fat, they should. If they want to have their salmon, wild salmon, and eat the skin, go ahead. If they want to have chicken, eat the skin, go right ahead. It's perfectly fine for most people. Um, 
But unfortunately, this whole issue is clouded by the fact that commercial food production in livestock often comes from a large warehouse, 55,000 chickens stacked six high, wings and beaks clipped, fed on a conveyor belt. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah. So that animal, if you eat it, ideally you wouldn't, but if you do, that fat you might not want. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with fat. It has to do with the way that animal was raised. But that animal raised in an industrial setting like that, not only is the fat a repository for bad things, it's also rich in linoleic acid. That is the omega-6 fraction of of oils. Most Americans, as you know, are highly overexposed to the omega-6 linoleic fraction of fats, such as that in soybean oil, corn oil, mixed vegetable oil, safflower, and sunflower oils. So we don't want to make it worse by eating factory farm-raised livestock. So where do you get your chickens or your beef? Well, for me, it's easy. I don't eat that much of it. So I try to seek out the free-range, organic-sourced animals. You might get a small piece at um, Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. I live in a city, so we can also get it from local producers. Um, For me, it's not that big a deal because I don't eat that much of it. Um, But that's what people would have to do. They'll have to either get acquainted with a farmer, if such a thing is possible, if you live in a suburban or semi-rural area. Uh, thankfully, some of the uh, retailers are making it a little bit more accessible. Um, so uh, it does require some effort, just like going to your farmer's market. Uh, it's not as easy as going to the local supermarket. But, um, you know, even some of the big chains are starting to at least claim they have better cuts of meat produced under more humane conditions. Uh, now, what is really being sold is another question. Of course, you've heard these stories about free-range chickens and eggs from free-range chickens, when free-range only means there's a door at the end of the coop. I didn't know that. Yeah. So we have that problem. that They're not really free-range. They have the potential for free-range, but they're not. So we have to be careful about what's being called free-range or, yes. or um, grass-fed. You've made other distinctions in the book about other carbohydrates that increase blood sugar. You said use ground flaxseed as a hot cereal, for example, as a form of breading also for chicken and fish. What else do you use for breading for chicken and fish? Um, That's a real handy one. You'll have to spice it up, of course. Right. Uh, Ground nuts can serve as a flour, but you'll find that um, it really needs to be dolled up a lot because it has this bland taste. Coconut flour is very versatile. I made my Thanksgiving turkey, and I thickened up the drippings with coconut flour. I added a teaspoon at a time. You wait a minute for it to absorb. And it not only did it make a nice gravy, Kim, it made a much more delicious gravy than wheat flour or cornstarch. I did add some onion powder and garlic powder. And Me too. I had it in my turkey. <laughs> it's quite, in fact, I like this a lot better than standard uh, gravy. If If I have, if I have or someone senses the effects has conventional gravy, you're going to have a sky-high blood sugar for 24 hours, you're going to trigger the number one cause for heart disease, small LDL particles, for a week, you may have joint pains, arthritis, asthma, depending what your specific susceptibility is to the wheat effect. If you and I reconfigure that simple gravy and use coconut flour instead, none of that happens. No weight gain, no blood sugar, no small LDL, no pain. You can enjoy your gravy and your turkey and be done with it. So there's many wonderful ways to recreate foods without all those destructive ingredients, such as this thing created by geneticists, wheat. When you first came into this awareness and you started to put the pieces together, did you get nervous that you may be up against the agribusiness in a profound way? I was, but you know what dominates my day, Kim, is seeing what happens to people. So I do this in my practice. I do this online through my online heart disease prevention program. But when you see, I saw a guy just an hour ago who lost 62 pounds in one year. All he did was cut wheat and avoid junk carbs. His, his uh, measures of uh, things that cause heart disease, like small LDL, his value dropped from 2,000 to 200 with no drugs. So we're not talking about piling drugs on people. He dropped from a pre-diabetic to confidently non-pre-diabetic. He feels great. People 
are complimenting him on how he looks. He's off blood pressure medicine. So uh, I see this from the street level where I see incredible turnarounds in health, losing weight, reversing diabetes, relief from asthma, acid reflux disappearing, the chronic diarrhea and cramps of irritable bowel syndrome disappearing. So I see this from the human level. And for me, my primary concern was I see too many people struggling with health and weight, and I know the answer it's really just a bagel away. I mean, it's, it's that simple for so many people. I think, in fact, what most of my colleagues do day-to-day treating high cholesterol, hypertension, high blood pressure, arthritis, acid reflux, behavioral problems in children with ADHD and autism, on and on and on, what we're treating is wheat consumption. There's no, this is an incredibly huge problem. We're talking about tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in medical care, not even counting the human suffering. And all I think we're treating to a large degree is consumption of wheat. It's powerful. I want to read this paragraph on page 232 where you say, there's also an entire world of stealth sources of wheat and gluten that cannot be deciphered from the label. If the listed ingredients include nonspecific terms such as starch, emulsifiers, or leavening agents, then the food contains gluten until proven otherwise. And that's just one example. Yes, and the celiac people know this well because they're constantly fighting this battle, trying to avoid the most minimal exposures to vodka, to, to um, the little bit of breadcrumb left on the side of the pan because it was used to make something containing wheat just for the prior customer. So these people are always trying to dodge these stealth sources of wheat. Thankfully, most of us are not that sensitive, and a small inadvertent exposure doesn't trigger a disaster. Uh, But I've had my share of disasters, and most of us have. Um, But you're right. Wheat is hidden in everything. This is why, you know, and you've got to ask why. Why is it so ubiquitous in processed foods? I, see, I think it's not an accident. I think it's on purpose. I think you're right. This is an extremely sophisticated industry, extremely, both on the marketing side and the genetic side. Absolutely. If you're making $120 billion a year in revenues, one company at a time, you can pay some darn smart food scientists who can figure things out for you. And I don't think this is an accident. I think this was figured out 20 years ago. But no one's, you know, a fundamental question always in these kinds of things is when did they know what they know? When did the tobacco industry know that smoking was bad for lungs and vascular health and caused cancer? Well, uh, as you know, they concealed that for many decades. Uh, They knew about it way before it was made public. I think something similar is going on here. In the back, in the appendix, you list sauces, salad dressings, condiments, soups, soy and vegetarian products, sweeteners, seasonings, snacks and desserts. I mean, it goes on. Even some meats, hot cereals, colorings, fillers, texturizers, thickeners, energy protein, and meal replacement bars. That's a mind blower. <laughs> it, it is true. It's not just fast food. It's not the obvious breakfast cereals, which I know are terrible for most people. Even cheese. Now I'm getting upset. (laughs) It's everywhere. It truly is everywhere. Now, this scares a lot of people. So I think you and I have to remind people to return in in a big way to single-ingredient real foods. So we know, for instance, there's no wheat in a green pepper. There's no wheat in a cucumber. There's no wheat in olives and olive oil. So return to real single-ingredient foods, and you know those are... Or nuts, correct? Pardon me? Any type of nuts, almonds or walnuts. Yeah, a lot of us uh, uh, rely to a great degree on nuts and nut meals. So the two pieces of raspberry cheesecake I had this morning for breakfast, the crust was made with ground pecans. It was delicious. I added some cocoa flour, um, and some cocoa powder, um, and it was quite good, and an egg. So we rely to a great degree on nuts and ground nuts. It, it is, this is difficult for the people with nut allergies. It, it is definitely a lot tougher for them. They have to be much more selective in how they recreate these foods. But, yes, we use a lot of nuts. You've had a lot of successes with people, but I also went on your blog, and I thought it was neat that you put 
that somebody said, I eliminated wheat and I didn't lose weight. And then you wrote a whole blog post about it. You want to share that? Even though most people will lose a ton of weight, every now and then somebody doesn't lose weight. Respond to that. Yeah, good point. So it's not as if eliminating wheat solves all problems. And one of the problems it does not solve, for instance, is thyroid disorders. Thyroid disorders, Kim, you likely know are out of control. Uh, I see probably 25 to 30% of the people who come to my office have diagnosable thyroid disorders. So it's not a rare thing. So you could cut the wheat out. You might lose your tummy, lose about five pounds, and it comes to a halt. And then you examine the thyroid. And this, this, these people often have thyroid problems. Now, here's the problem. We have my, the conventional medical world who likes to dodge dealing with thyroid problems until it's flagrant or obvious. In other words, they would prefer you come back and say, you know what, I've gained 24 pounds, my legs are swelling, my hair is falling out, I lost my eyebrows, I'm constipated, and I'm non-functional, I sleep 14 hours a day. Then they'll decide that maybe it's time to treat your thyroid. Well, I don't think we should wait till that happens, which is what happens in advanced stages of of hypothyroidism. There's plenty of people walking around with lesser grades of thyroid dysfunction that can impair weight loss. It also messes up your cholesterol values. It makes your blood sugar higher. It makes your blood pressure higher. So this has implications across multiple facets of health, and it's easy as heck to correct. A lot of thyroid deficiency is caused by iodine deficiency. Uh, now, you're on the West Coast, but I'm in the, Mid-East, in the Midwest, where uh, iodine deficiency is coming back in full force, just like the first half of the 20th century, because we've been told to cut the salt in our diet. That was how we were all getting iodine. So I'm seeing goiters even, these big, gross, overgrown thyroids from uh, iodine lack. Uh, there's also the added problem of uh, exposures to multiple compounds that block thyroid, but block specifically the T3 thyroid hormone, which is very common. So perhaps I'm exposed to perchlorates. This is the residue of synthetic fertilizers in my produce that I didn't rinse well enough. Or how about polyfluoroactinoic acid? That's the stuff in nonstick cookware that blocks my thyroid. And I can go on and on. There are multiple compounds. It might be the herbicide your next-door neighbor spreads on his lawn or the pesticides. These things block thyroid function. So someone goes wheat-free, they lose a few pounds, and it comes to a halt. Always think thyroid. Uh, another problem is overconsumption of carbohydrates because what if you've lost 40% of your pancreatic function because you've been eating a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet for the last 40 years? You cut out wheat, you get a partial response, but you're overconsuming cornmeal, corn starch, sugars, and other goodies. You, can, you could booby trap. You could booby trap a wheat-free effort. As powerful as going wheat-free is, you could actually stall it by overconsuming junk foods. So some people really need to focus on cutting overall carbohydrates as well, particularly if you have a pre-diabetic or diabetic tendency. So there's really not a one-size-fits-all approach in this. In other words, a 23-year-old slender marathon-running female who's premenopausal is going to have a different tolerance to carbohydrates and wheat, say, than a uh, 298-pound 50-year-old male who's diabetic. Those are two different people with two different levels of sensitivity. Absolutely, and I was going to say... I'm on bioidentical hormones, and I'm on thyroid. There's been some new knowledge, though. I wonder if you've heard about it with respect to the iodine. It has been found that Hashimoto's patients do have to watch the amount of iodine that they get. So, you know, that 12.5 iodoral that people are taking now to get rid of the perchlorates and pesticides and to up-level their iodine For Hashimoto's patients, it could be the worst thing that you could do. So that's the only case where I would say we still need more information, I think, uh, nationally to see how much iodine that we need. I don't know if you've heard that yet. Yeah, the people with Hashimoto's are very sensitive to iodine. They could even respond, say, to 200 to 500 micrograms of iodine. The iodoro iodoro is 12.5, sorry, 12,500 micrograms of iodine. And by the way, that does generate toxicity. I've seen people who come to me with uh, iodine toxicity who are taking those kinds of preparations like Lugol's, uh, the higher doses of iodine. So the iodine, I agree, is an evolving conversation. Right, right. The Hashimoto's people have to be extra carefully. Probably should do that only with supervision, if at all. Exactly. 
I do remind people that iodine is not an optional nutrient. In other words, um, beyond thyroid, uh, there's uh, very interesting data that iodine protects female breasts from fibrocystic breast disease and perhaps breast cancer. It may be among, among the most important things we can do to maintain oral health and protection from gingivitis because the, sal- the salivary glands uh, produce or, or, or um, um, put iodine in saliva. So there, there is importance to iodine even above and beyond thyroid. Um, the, the curious thing, of course, we're told to cut salt, and what I'm seeing come through my office is just like 1925, goiters. I had one as a young tournament tennis player. I had a goiter, and they overdosed me on thyroid, and it was the wrong kind of thyroid, and I was an experiment, I think, here in Los Angeles for quite a while. Oh, boy. But I did read Iodine, Why You Need It, Why You Can't Live Without It by David Brownstein, and the gentleman who did pretty revolutionary work, Dr. Karazian, he wrote, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal? A Revolutionary Breakthrough in Understanding Hashimoto's Disease and Hypothyroidism. Very interesting. Life Extension was putting that out as well. I wanted to ask you about asthma because I thought it was pretty remarkable that you were seeing that people were getting market improvement and or total relief from arthritis, but also asthma. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that took me by surprise too. Uh, People who had been relying on two or three inhalers for years found they hardly needed to use them at all. So I've got lots of people who actually threw their inhalers away. It seems to overlap also with relief from sinus congestion. Lots of people have had chronic sinus congestion and uh, repetitive sinus infections, having to take antibiotics a couple of times a year. Uh, Many people have reported dramatic improvement in both those things. I don't know why. You know, that's one of the issues uh, we're encountering is we're seeing incredible effects like relief from asthma, relief from migraine headaches. But why? What in the world is in modern wheat that could allow such incredibly varied expressions on the surface? So I don't know. I can speculate. It might be the lectins. It might be the gliadin. It might be some other component. By the way, there are are many, many components in modern wheat that have been changed at the hands of geneticists. And we don't even know about probably hundreds, if not thousands, of other components of wheat that have been changed by the genetics efforts over the last 40 years that might have implications in health. So it's not as if all the adverse effects of of wheat have been charted out. Many have not been. And I think this is the reason why we have this 2 plus 2 equals 11 effect. That is, we know about the gliadin in wheat. We know about the amylopectin A. We know about the lectins. We know about a lot of the adverse, unhealthy components of wheat, but even if you know about all those things, the apparent benefits of going wheat-free seem to exceed what you expect. This has happened to me time and time again. And even today, Kim, I'm learning new lessons. People are reporting to me how their dandruff disappears. I didn't know that. I didn't expect that so many people would get relief from 10, 20, or 30 years of daily migraine headaches, for instance. We had a woman come on and say she was moving her bowels every two to three weeks for 20 years. And only when she went wheat-free did she completely purge her intestinal tract and get relief from chronic incapacitating uh, constipation. So even, even today, we're learning new lessons. You said organic, multigrain, sprouted, it makes no difference. I was sharing your book with a dear friend of mine in Washington State. And she said, well, I eat the Ezekiel sprouted bread. I said, listen, it doesn't make any difference. She was shocked. And she goes, no, it does make a difference. I said, I used to eat it myself. (laughs) Why doesn't it matter? Well, the contents of the seed still contain many of the components of uh, the full wheat plant before it, uh, it sprouted. So there might be a change, it might, there might be a shift lower in gluten content, but it still has gluten content, it still has lectins, it still has gliadin. In other words, for all practical purposes, it is still wheat coming from the very same plant. So we could sprout it, we could sourdough ferment it, we could not expose it to pesticides and herbicides and call it organic. 
we can do all those kinds of manipulations, but in the end, the darn plant is still the same thing. So it could be a big loaf of multigrain bread you paid five ninety nine for, or it could be a little cellophane wrapped package of Twinkies. It's all coming from the same plant. I like it in your book where you give the analogy, boys will be boys, wheat will be wheat. <laughs> it really brings it home. It's not easy to hear, but it still brings it home. You said wheat occupies 60 million acres of farmland in the United States, an area equal to the state of Ohio. And worldwide, it's grown on an area 10 times that bigger or twice the total acreage of Western Europe. Wow. And you know, Kim, it's, it's an economically unfeasible message. So I'm, I'm quite aware that uh, we're talking about something that constitutes 20% of all human calories. So as much as I'd like to, if we could eliminate wheat, if we could erase it from the human diet by tomorrow, it would not be a wise thing. In other words, we're going to have people starving in Africa, in India, in China. So this thing serves a necessary purpose right now. It is an evil serving necessary purpose. So this, for economic stability, this thing, this has to unwind over many years so I'm not proposing legislation. No one's, no one's going before Congress trying to ban wheat. But this is trying to educate and inform people who have the knowledge, uh, background, and discretion to say, you know what, it's not worth it. I understand that this supplies 20% of all human calories, but I'm not going to participate in this. I don't want acid reflux. I don't want gastrointestinal destruction. I don't want dementia. I don't want cerebellar ataxia and other neurological impairment. I don't want diabetes. I don't want arthritis. I don't want heart disease. So I think this is a choice that we all should need to make. But uh, it is a tough sell over the next 20, 30 years because it is such an incredible piece of world economics. You're right. Why can't at least some people try to use the older form of wheat that hasn't been changed? And how do we know it hasn't been changed, the kind in Provence, France, for example? That's right. We often don't know. There have been attempts to genotype, that is to map out the genetics of different plants. Some universities do this, um, such as our USDA, for instance, and a place like Kansas State University. They actually do have gene maps of different what they call cultivars or strains of wheat. So there are some efforts uh, to map out what, sp what kind of wheat you have in your hands. And there have been efforts to also to maintain and store some of the older forms, the so-called heritage or heirloom forms. So that, that effort is starting. Now this, by the way, raises another question. Should we bring back the wheat of 1950? Should we bring back the wheat of the 19th century, like Red Fife, that was very popular in the U.S. back then? Or how about Emmer of the Bible? That's kind of what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. But these efforts, what they've done is they've cataloged what the genes look like in each of those strains of wheat. So we do have some comparators to compare modern wheat to. That would have to be a study, wouldn't it, really? Yeah, that's a huge area all of its own. I just really want to applaud you for all the work that you've done that transformed itself into the book Wheat Belly, and also the work that you're doing with your patients and online. What is it that you can tell the public as we approach the end of this segment? I know it's a very tough message, as you said. It's not an easy message for people to hear. Thank you, Kim. And, and you, too. You're, <laughs> you're climbing the same walls I am. <laughs> I'm still climbing. But this is really new knowledge, and this is about discerning what's in our food supply. We really can create a wheat-free life. The question now is in using your book to be part of that solution. What else can you tell the audience in terms of the challenges for going out to dinner, going out to lunch? What do we do? Well, it's a return to real single-ingredient foods as often as possible. In other words, you know that salad likely does not have wheat unless it has croutons. You can ask them about the salad dressing. You know, part of my motivation, Kim, to get this book out was to make it easier for people. You know, 10 years ago, a celiac patient had to go to a restaurant, and it was a disaster. It was a, it was a lesson in danger because you ask the wait staff, they have no idea what you're talking about, nor do they care. Well, this has become such a prime topic of conversation. There's so many people joining the conversation, though it might be for gluten-free purposes. Uh, restaurant staff are now getting used to it, and they're getting... I've been to several restaurants in the last several months, and you know what? I've, I, I, I had a very nice dinner with my wife just a week ago, 
And the wait staff couldn't be more helpful in pointing out, this has no wheat. I double-checked with the chef. And I was, I was dumbfounded. It was easy. They made it easy. I think that's going to happen more so. It's not going to happen in fast food by tomorrow, but I think that as more and more people question wait staff, question restaurants, that it will become much easier and safer so that you don't get inadvertent exposures. No question, the most sensitive among us, that is people with celiac disease and its equivalents, it's still hazardous to trust what wait staff tell you or what a chef tells you. Uh, but for most of us who aren't quite that sensitive, you can be pretty well assured that lots of foods are available now, and it's becoming easier to find those foods. I found out about you through the Life Extension magazine. I'm a member of Life Extension Foundation in Florida, and I love them. I really do, and I'm so grateful to them and all the work that they're doing. And I just absolutely had to read your book and bring you on the show. Is there some tests that we can take? I know you mentioned one or two of them earlier to have an overall look at where our pancreas is at, some general blood tests that we can take and see where we're at. Easiest test is a hemoglobin A1C. That is this number that reflects your previous 60, day, 60 days or so uh, blood sugar vari- variation. Um, uh, I, truly ideal is 5.0% or less. Uh, you'll, you'll find that your primary care doctor often quotes 6.5 or less or even 7.0 or less, but the primary care doctor is often asking, do you need medication? Well, that's not how I define health. I define health by looking at a specific measure and asking when, do it, when does it cease adding to disease and uh, poor health and when does it become something favorable for health? And for hemoglobin A1C, it's 5.0% and less. That's the easiest measure. So if you're, let's say, <clears throat> at the start of your wheat-free journey, if your hemoglobin A1C is 5.9%, a very typical value for an average American, that is pre-diabetes. You go wheat-free, you lose 18 pounds over the last, next two or three months. Uh, perhaps you cut other carbi- carbohydrates as well. You check a hemoglobin A1C, maybe it's 5.2%. That gives you the most easy readily available feedback on your sensitivity to carbohydrates. That's very, very helpful. People can go to your website. It's under wheatbellybook.com, and also you have a blog, wheatbellyblog.com. And another site, which is Track Your Plaque, correct? That's right. The Track Your Plaque is based uh, is focused more on heart disease prevention and reversal, and the, the cornerstone of that, of course, is elimination of wheat, among many other things. Uh, and anyone wishing to join the conversation, the easiest place to start is the Wheat Belly blog. I'm so glad you published this book and are doing this work. I cannot thank you enough. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. William Davis, the author of Wheat Belly, Lose the Wheat, Lose the Weight, and Find Your Path Back to Health. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll come back in the next six months to a year and talk to us about how you've been received across the world. I'd love to, Kim. Thank you so much.